Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In today's interview, we speak with Yoki Matsuoka, who is the director of the Neurobotics Laboratory at the University of Washington in the U.S. Starting off as an aspiring tennis pro, then eventually dreaming of a robot tennis buddy, and finally concentrating on the signals and mechanics which can allow humans and robots to move, she has been tapping into the secrets of mobility. Through her understanding, she builds prosthetics and exoskeletons, which can help disabled people regain their mobility and service test beds for neuroscientists. Hi, Yoki. Welcome to Talking Robots. Hi. Hi, Sabine. You're the director of the Neurobotics Lab at the University of Washington. What is the goal of the Neurobotics Lab? The goal of the Neurobotics Lab is to um, really integrate the idea of um, neuroscience and robotics as a way to understand, assist, and rehabilitate human motion. So really what I'm interested in is um, to utilize robotic technology um, in, in a variety of forms. It could be a stationary robot that's sitting on the ground, or it could be a wearable robotic device. It could be an in an exoskeleton form, or it could be in a prosthetic form, which will allow people who have disability, specifically neurological disorders, um, to be able to um, move and do things that they couldn't have done um, otherwise on their own. And what is your motivation in achieving this goal? So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, the motivation can be in a variety of domains, um, you know, academically speaking, I'm interested in utilizing a robotic device as a way to really sort of further um, understand how human brain works in general. And, you know, that is scientifically extremely fascinating. But, of course, as a result, um, another big motivation is that because of the um, understanding that we gain, we want to use that knowledge to help people who can't be helped otherwise. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's a really good motivation, sort of the reason why we, you know, wake up in the morning and then feel really happy to go to work and keep working on this problem because we feel that, you know, that whatever we work on in the neurobotics lab will have effect on people, whether it's in the near future or in the long, you know, long time from now. Over the years, you've been looking at how the central nervous system produces signals that control our limbs and movements and then using that information to create lifelike robotic prosthetics. Can you present your anatomically correct test bed hand? Sure. So um, this anatomically correct robotic, um, uh, the test bed robotic hand, the whole idea was conceived about six, seven years ago um, with the really idea that um, the, I wanted to really decode how the brain controls the hand, and not only in a very simplistic way in terms of grasping objects, um, but in the dexterity way. So I really feel that human hands are extremely dexterous and that can gather information in a way that no other species can. So in really, in a way, humans are um, 
distinguished from other species and built this society because of our dexterity. Um, you know, primates can manipulate objects or, you know, in to a certain extent. And we can't even get to the point of mimicking that, but I really wanted to go beyond that to understand um, the, something special about the human brain, which is this hand dexterity. So in order to really understand it, we had to have some mechanism, hardware, um, in a limb that we could express this neurological signals. And um, there were no uh, robotic system that could do this. And there were no really uh, good, even, you know, using cadaver or human system that could really achieve the goal that we were looking for. So we really jumped into building an anatomical model of a human hand with as much detail as possible. And as we dove into it, we realized that the current literature does not support enough information for us to just go in and build based on everything that's out there. So we really had to do our own study from dissecting human hands and all the way to really learning about biomechanics. So by building it, turned out that we are learning and contributing to the field of, of um, human hand biomechanics. So what does this testbed hand look like? What are, what are the materials used, the actuators, sensors? Um, so we use, um, initially we tried to go for the most anatomical um, structure. So we went with, um, for example, human joints that are um, made of uh, in a fluid called synovial fluid, which acts as a, a super lubricant between two bones that are encapsulated by ligaments. So we originally tried to make it even material-wise, as close to that as possible. So um, we had two bones which were made of um, plastic material come together and then um, encapsulated by um, sort of a nylon plastic composite um, um, material which encapsulated a gel-like material which was supposed to simulate the synovial fluid. Um, however, I think at that point we went a little bit too far in really ma mimicking the materials at the current state of material science. So um, uh, when, uh, the, when the system started to decompose a little bit too quickly, we um, went back a little bit. And then now we use um, uh, quite a lot of metal still for joints, um, places where it needs to be rigid and um, should not... Um, and it can uh, withstand repetitive motion, and parts which have unique human-like curvature, such as the bone shape, uh, we use the uh, plastic material. And for tendons, um, we use, um, a, I guess, a synthetic a composite, which is strong yet also um, have the elasticity that mimics the human tendons. Um, and then those tendons are connected to muscle-like structures. And, and for the muscles, we actually use um, motors, like a regular brushless DC motors, because um, we could not really find or create artificial muscles that have the functions that mimic the human muscles well. So you have this artificial hand, which is a close replicate to the real one. What can this be used for? So, again, sort of the main goal for us 
at first is to use it as a test bed for um, investigation of neural control of movement. So to really understand what the right signals to put in if we had this um, anatomical hand available. So, you know, by putting in different inputs to the system, we will be able to learn what the brain might be doing to move such a complex um, biomechanical system. But, of course, as we build the system, we can start to really think of using it as a telemanipulator. So telemanipulator could be, uh, you know, a humanoid hand that will one day be on on a space shuttle and go and explore the Mars and, you know, do human-level dexterous operation on um, very far away locations. Or um, maybe it could become a prosthetic device that is worn by amputees um, to really, you know, again, provide them with the human dexterity that they once had. The hand is so complex. Why didn't you go for something a little more abstract? (laughs) It's really a good question. Um, And um, something, of course, I think about all the time. Um, I actually came from the camp of um, building something simple already. Um, So when I was a PhD student at MIT, um, I have actually constructed a robotic hand, um, which were built on a much simpler concept of just building, you know, quickly uh, um, a system that has passive compliance built into it and then have simple grasping algorithms built in it which um, had uh, just a hardwired reflex, just like babies, just uh, fingers curl until all the uh, finger hits an object and apply a certain amount of pressure and um, then curl out as uh, necessary when the, maybe the outer skin was touched or pinched. And then put neural networks to really learn different interactions with, depending on what the sensory feedback was. And by doing so, I found out that it is really not that difficult to build a robotic hand and the algorithm that is able to simply grasp um, or grip different objects as long as they were enough passive compliant in a mechanism. So I stacked from there, but again, sort of thinking about real dexterity of humans. So something that um, for example, monkeys don't have something that humans really have that's so unique about our hands. I wanted to really imp- implement that. And then when I started thinking about the mechanism to do so, I didn't know where to go, where to start from, except to really mimic the human system at first. So that's where I really decided that, you know what, I'm just going to go all the way to mimic the most complex system. And, you know, currently, as I'm building them, I'm hoping that I will learn things which will allow me to drop some of the complexity as just a sort of byproduct of some evolutionary consequence so we don't really have to mimic that to have our level of dexterity. So, you know, over time, hopefully, it won't be as complex as where we are starting right now. You were talking before of the neurosignals which can control this hand. Can you maybe describe these signals and explain how they're responsible for hand movement? So um, the neurosignal that we're trying to use to move this um, act hand can, you know, come from a variety of places. Um, sort of, you know, there are two levels of answer to this, sort of at what point 
do we tap into this neural signal and then what content are we looking for? So in terms of where we tap in, um, you know, we can tap in from the uh, so the lowest level, which is already the nerve signals that are arriving at the individual muscles, which is often, you know, gathered by um, electromyography or EMG system. Um, so we can tap into there. Um, but what I'm really excited about tapping in is sort of other peripheral, signal, uh, uh, peripheral uh, signals that are available um, prior to arriving at the muscles. So we have relatively low-level muscle control information available, um, yet it's not really sort of a fine-tune to specific muscles. And maybe that can be gathered through um, systems, something maybe like a nerve cuff that just grabs onto some of the nerves that are running in the arm or leg and then um, get the signal out of there. Um, but as we move further, we are collaborating with people who can get much higher level information, very high, right at the cortex, right at the brain, um, and they gather information that are coming from the area on the brain that's controlling the hand, and then utilizing those high-level signals to control our robotic hand also. Now, in terms of the content that we're looking for, you know, in the lower-level signals, we're looking for, you know, specific muscle-level control signals. But as we are working with high-level brain signals, which is very important to do for patients who don't have the arm left or, you know, spinal cord patients who have healthy brain but have an injury in the spine so that the nerve signals are not conducted all the way beyond to their limbs, um, you know, we want to get higher-level higher information, everything from the intent. So they want, might want to reach for a coffee mug uh, um, over uh, maybe a Coke bottle next to it. Um, we want to be able to gather you know, really high-level information from there, you know, maybe about force information, how much, you know, how tight do they want to grab this, um, this bottle? Um, do they want to open this bottle? You know, how should, what kind of strategy should, they, should people be really using to open these things? Um, what kind of dexterous activities do they want to get involved in? So, you know, we, we're really sort of in, you know, in the unknown territory. Um, not a lot is known about these fields. And what we're hoping to do is that by us really doing research in the lower level detail of mechanisms, we can provide information to the neuroscientists who are really getting those signals from humans and um, animals but what kind of signals they really ought to be looking for. And um, vice versa, we really want to be learning from them in terms of what kind of signals the, the brain and the nervous system is representing as a way to design our mechanism. How do you tap into the nervous signal? Uh, um, so usually there are really elect, elect, you know, like electric system, almost like... Um, wire that goes either into the brain itself, the brain tissue itself, or from the surface of the brain, um, or, um, you know, or the surface on the, on the skin, um, then those wires are collecting the electrical signals that the, the neuro, neural signal, neural, neural tissue and neurons are producing. And those signals get amplified and then um, analyzed, amplified, and then get fed in as input signals to the robotic system. 
Once you've figured out for a, a given patient how a certain signal moves, for example, his finger, how do you adapt this knowledge to different patients? Um, well, the system is going to, you know, the system that we're going to build will have to be very adaptable anyway. Um, different people's brains are very, you know, it's wired very differently. Different neurons represent different information because of their prior experience and, and you know, the way their hand is structured. So it's going to have to be very adaptable. But even on top of that, within one person, um, the system has to be adaptable. It's going to be a co-adapting system because human brain itself is so adaptable. If the moment we attach this robotic computer system, the brain is going to, you know, do whatever it takes to adapt to this um, the system, and it will the robotic the brain structure itself will start to change. So um, whatever we'll build will be extremely flexible. So have you already connected any of these signals to your to your ACT? Um, uh, the only thing we have done in terms of connecting the neural signals is to feed in the muscle level signals, so what we can gather from the electromyography signals. But um, we have not so far done any other sig neural signals as a control sim uh, signal for the ACT hand Uh, we're really excited to do that in the very near future right now. So you could use these signals to, to control a, a prosthetic arm, for example, but you could also use it to control an exoskeleton. Uh, how is an exoskeleton different from a prosthetic device? Okay. So um prosthetic device is an actual limb um, which is used to replace the limbs for those people who are completely missing the limbs So the target patient group would be the amputees. Um, on the other hand, exoskeleton device is it's basically a wearable robotic device, um, and it is suitable for people who have their own limbs, um, but they're not controllable by their own nervous six, uh, signals. So the great target audience would be spinal cord patients um, who have you know, all the limbs still, just that they're no longer controllable by their brain. So exoskeleton system can be worn externally on their limbs. And then again, as you say, in the same way, the neurosignal can be um, the input signal to the robotic device and move their um, original limb through the robotic device. Can you maybe present the hand exoskeleton you're working on? Sure. Um, The hand exoskeleton, um, the idea is for providing motion to um, the patients who have some residual motion um, to the arm, but not so much to the hand. Um, and this is common for spinal cord patients who have injuries in the spinal column sections between what's known as C5 to C8. Um, and those patients um, might be able to move the shoulder or move the elbow to direct their hand, but their hand is useless. Of course, the moment the hand can't do anything, they can't, you know, even grab or interact or eat or brush teeth on their own. So this um, exoskeleton system allows um, um, the use of some of the muscles they can still control 
left in their um, upper upper parts of the arm, or even the you know the neck or the other arm, wherever they feel most comfortable um, to um, get the muscle signal from to control their hand motion, and then allow the um, their um, fingers to open and close in a variable degree depending on um, what they're um, inputting from their existing working muscles. In general, people who would need these exoskeletons or prosthetics, uh, how do they react to these uh, new robotic technologies? Um, interesting. So, you know, so far for our exoskeleton system, we have um, fitted the system for a college student who had a spinal cord injury at age 13. And um, he was very excited. Um, he, you know, really wanted to have a system like this, you know, worn all the time so that he can do things that he can't do. He had um, 24-hour systems to do all the necessary daily activities um, and You know, so he he came to the lab very excited, and even the kind of things he could do, which was that he was able to grab onto soft food. As it turned out, in this case, he ate some Twinkies um, using his own hand, and he was very very excited. But you know, also another um, thing, the reaction uh, from him, and in, in general, is that uh, they are a little bit disappointed that these systems are still bulky. These systems are not something they can just take home, wear it all the time, be durable and commercially available at a, you know some cheap price. So um, you know there, I think there's a mix that they're very happy to see that such work exists, and then there are things that you know that um, can be done by using those things. But um, you know we still have a long way, and then that often disappoints them. Some people might be worried that such robotic implants could allow humans to enhance their capabilities, for example, by giving them superhuman strength. Do you see a need to impose limits on what can and cannot be done? Yeah, you know, this issue is a very interesting one because, you know, now, of course, with TV, Hollywood movies, um, robotic systems are, um, you know, hypothesized to go beyond... Um, what humans are capable of, and it might harm the human society. Um, yeah, you know what? I um, I believe that um, we should impose a rule as we make advances in the technology. I mean, we are already at the point where we are enhancing soldiers in a military situation um, because of some robotic devices the soldiers can um, carry more weight and go further than if they didn't have assistance. So in a way, they are not just, you know, augmenting disabled people to be normal, but we're going beyond that. We're augmenting normal people to be stronger and faster than um, the normal human capability. So, you know, it's not going to be um, uh, too long before those things can be imagined and people can start working on that for different usages. Um, so it's certainly, and then, you know, certainly so disabled people should not end up with extreme power 
which can harm the society. Um, so just as, you know, just as sports, for example, we have rules about sports, you know, players are, you know, maybe even though people can play better sports if they had better equipment, um, golf or tennis rackets, um, you know, there are rules to limit them from doing so. And then there should be same rules about in the medical field about how the robotic um, systems will be limited in a certain power or capability. Okay, let's talk a bit about the future now. In a previous interview, you said, there seems to be a gap between what's available to disabled people right now and what is possible with robotics. What is needed to get this technology out of the labs to people who need it? Um, let's see. In reality, I think the big bottleneck for the field of robotics right now is in the size and the weight. Um, you know, if we can build a robotic device in a very, very light, flexible system um, and, um, you know, something very small, then... Um, we are getting pretty close to um, being able to just really start using it in a commercial sense. And as if we get to use this with the patients more often, then we will have a lot more data um, that we can use to um, improve on the software and control side of things. But because the system is so bulky and so heavy, no... Uh, you know, no users, especially patients who have neurological disorders or amputated already, so they're already under distress to, you know, wear those systems at all time. It's so hard that they just abandon the system right now. So, you know, that's sort of a bad feedback at this point. Because they don't use it, we don't have data, so we can't improve on the system. Um, so I think that's where, you know, big, um, big improvements should come for the robotic system to become readily available for the disabled people. And what do you see as the most promising areas of research in neurobotics for the next 20 years? I think, you know, that there are probably two things that need to happen. Um, the one, the most important one, is in having more um, robotic scientists so people who are doing robotics who understand neuroscience so that robotic system can be appropriately designed for such interface. Also, we need to have more neuroscientists who understand robotics and engineering needs and demands so that that, that interface um, in a disciplinary, cross-disciplinary interface and, um, becomes much closer together. Right now, that is really far apart still. Um, but the trend is good, though. Um, that's one. Um, also, in general, um, I think the, you know, the field of neuroscience, or just sort of the whole understanding of how the human brain works has to also come a little bit more. It's, you know, so that's really starting to relate to things like brain-machine interface as we really start to be able to do things like brain controlling the machine, um, 
we got to be able to use some of the inherent natural brain signal to be able to do it. And that means that we need to really understand a little bit more about how we normally use our brain signal to move our existing healthy limbs. In all areas of robotics now, where do you see the big potential for the next 20 years? I think, I mean, again, I might be biased, um, but the, what's going to be great is that robots will be useful And, um, you know, if in the initial view, so far, robots have been really useful in assembly setup, very inhuman environment. You know, they, humans are, are not allowed to and should not be near those robots because they're swinging really fast and, um, you know, but they were very efficient in doing repetitive motion over and over, far better than humans could without tiring. Now, you know, I want to see robots move and then contribute and will contribute in the area of human-level interaction in the future. So medicine, anywhere from surgical robotic um, system so that more patients can um, be um, operated on, more, um, um, more procedures can be done non-invasively, And more patients can be operated teleoperatively so that as needed, they can be operated immediately. Um, all the way to then more of a rehabilitation, domestic uh, rehabilitation um, and assistance. So people should have robotic system, which will be part of a medical care, but they can have that system in their house so that they don't have to go to the hospital to get the kind of um, care they're needed to the social um, interaction-assisted domestic robots um, that can be used for um, elderly people at home so that they have anywhere from reminder to take medicine to having robots bringing um, cooking and bringing meals to having a social companion. Um, all of that is going to be the way to the future And I'd like to see more and more of those um, closely and human-robot interaction um, environment. Thanks, Yogi, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Sure. Yeah, thank you very much, Sabine. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Yoki Matsuoka on prosthetic limbs. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.